Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Shares for beginners. If you're playing soccer as a kid and you played soccer on the street for football or rugby and you had a dispute over the score, you couldn't just convince one of the kids on the street that the score was two to one. You had to convince everybody. And that's sort of a juvenile sort of basis of what's called consensus. And that's really what blockchain is built around. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but really it's centered around you need everyone who's going to verify, confirm, and ultimately provide that authenticity of the accuracy of their information. G'day, and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Are you as confused as I am about cryptocurrencies, blockchain and Bitcoin? There's a ton of conflicting information, attention-grabbing headlines, Twitter feeds and unqualified sources that can lead to manipulation, confusion and high-risk trading. My guest is here today to shed some light on this complicated and often intimidating sector and to also show how blockchain is not just about new currencies, but an integral part of how businesses will be operating now and into the future. Hello, Edmund. Hey, how are you doing, Phil? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Edmund McCormick is the founder of crypto education platform Dechained. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What um, brought you to this point in life? Yeah, I've been investing in crypto for 10 years. But before that, I had spent 15 years in the tech industry, working at places like MySpace way back in the day, all the way through Apple to this point now where we're at this impasse, at least in the tech world, in terms of where we go from here. And it's been really exciting teaching people about not necessarily the speculative parts of of crypto, but more so the technology companies that are coming on board and using this technology. Because I think it's going to make a massive, massive impact in our everyday lives. And we're witnessing it right now. So this impasse that you referred to, is that why you started Dechained? Well, it was a big reason why I did, yes. Because (laughs) for one, there's a big movement globally around consumer privacy. And it's happened a couple of years ago. And once that ball started rolling, ultimately, we started to see more and more you know, legislators come on board, even self-imposed restrictions in the tech sector, like Apple. And as we continued sort of to this point, we've seen this line in the sand between the companies who are getting a lot of this information and what could happen if that information gets in the hands of the wrong people, and others who say, we want to be able to invest in future technology, but that future technology like AI or like Internet of Things, having more devices connected all around us, is going to require a different type of model than you know allowing Google and Facebook to basically gather everything about you. So especially with you know Facebook going out for six hours yesterday, I think that woke a lot of people up. And that's a great example of the Internet of Things in operation because they couldn't even get into the offices. They couldn't, no. And you know, this is something that again, that's a somewhat benign use case. Can't open the door, you know, maybe get a coffee for a couple extra minutes. But what happens if that data is used in a way that could be dangerous? What happens if 
I had access to that data and I knew by you not getting into your office that you inevitably were not home. Then all of a sudden you run into a scenario where someone could now burglarize your home because they know that you're not there and following your location. So without going too much down the black mirror path, you know, it became apparent that things had to change. And fortunately, there were a lot of the undercurrents already in place to help bring us to this space that we're in now where you have companies who are finding ways to tap into data sources that could make a pretty profound impact on healthcare, on transportation, energy. And a lot of that has to do with this underlying technology called blockchain. And that's something that at DeChain from the education side, we take a lot of time to try and teach people about it. And just to learn about the technology, learn about those companies, and ultimately let them make decisions for themselves if this is something that interests them. Okay, so we'll start with blockchain. And um, I was reading um, one of the sections on the DeChain website that was explaining how blockchain works. And I've got to say, it's one of the clearest explanations I've I've seen so far in this space. Can you just give us a quick run through? But we will put a link in the blog post in the show notes to that particular source, because you know people might want to reflect a little bit longer and teach themselves a little bit more about how it does actually work. Yeah, so blockchain, think of it like something that's been around for thousands of years, a ledger. So basically, it's something that keeps track of all the credits and debits, just like your credit card. Just like they used to have stone tablets in ancient Mesopotamia with um, account records. It's a ledger, isn't it? Exactly. That's it. And the big difference is that rather than having all that data then stored on one server or one computer, which could get hacked. Or one stone tablet. (laughs) One stone tablet, there it is. Which is pretty unhackable, really, when you think about it. (laughs) Unless you have a chisel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But ultimately, you have this, this record that could be stored in a way that it's distributed to everyone who's connected to, you know, this overall chain, this network of people. And ultimately, once that transaction is added to other transactions, it's what's called encrypted. So there's all this uh, high security protection put around it. A password is probably an easier way to explain it. That is so long that inevitably it's unhackable. Just the length of these passwords, it would take you billions of years to actually break it. And in order to do that, you would actually have to break every single transaction before then. So you're talking about something that's just impenetrable. Nevertheless, the reason why it's become so important is, aside from a lot of the use cases that we hear from a financial standpoint, if you just look at things that it could have a big impact around, like titles to land, you know, and ultimately having accurate records around, did your home get an inspection during this said year that you're stating to the government? People fudging the numbers a little bit. And this is where you start to see big impacts because you don't have instances where people could, you know, manipulate the numbers. So the Bernie Madoffs of the world, the more of those things that you hear on the seedy underbelly of the finance industry, that all becomes exposed and it becomes more transparent. It becomes uneditable. And ultimately, because there's a record that you can always trace back to, it's accountable. And there's a lot that you could do with that both in terms of from a business standpoint, from a public health perspective, especially around 
food and food safety and knowing what you're buying is what you're actually getting, all the way down to you know being able to use data and access data, but do it in a way that's respectful of privacy for the consumer, but also allows those companies who are looking to innovate and need that data to access it so that we could start really getting into what is the next phase of tech, and that being more computer-based systems, AI. And again, those are some of the things that a lot of people like to talk about because they'll make impacts on our lives. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So the use case that uh, people know about blockchain so much about now is um, really Bitcoin. So this is not a conversation about cryptocurrency and buying and selling cryptocurrency, but we really should address what is Bitcoin and um, how blockchain has enabled that. Yeah, and I appreciate when we first talked, Phil, for your listeners, we talked about what are we going to discuss on the show. And one of the things I said, I think even I beat you to it, I don't want to sit and pump coins. It's not something that I like to do, you want to hear, or your listeners want. So I'm really happy to be able to talk about the tech. But you know, think about this. You know, when it comes to Bitcoin, a lot of people think about the money side. But oftentimes, a lot of people forget that it's a blockchain. Bitcoin is a blockchain. And it was the first blockchain. Now, the technology that it used was not new. It used an operating model that had been tested by Cambridge University about 10 years before as a way of trying to stamp out spam email. It didn't work. But inevitably, what it did create was this standard for how money can get transmitted over the internet. And if you just take a step back and you hear that for a second, there's a standard if you want to buy a domain name. There's a standard for when an email is sent. Even recording this interview. There's a standard for the audio and video and streaming of it. But there was never a standard for money. And it's mind-blowing. And it was approached initially by Elon Musk and Peter Thiel when they got together in the 90s and created PayPal. They realized that the finance industry was just too big of a titan to take on and it was too laborious. So they went in a different direction and I think we'd all agree it worked out well for them. But ultimately, those undercurrents stayed in place. And fortunately, in 2009, there was someone or a group of people, because that identity was never revealed, who took that model of how do we create really democratized information that's secure and also can be used as a way of creating an entirely new economy, global economy. And that's where you know sort of the genesis of Bitcoin came from. And of course, um, cryptocurrencies, we'll just talk for just for a minute longer about cryptocurrencies. To buy and sell or transact with cryptocurrencies, you would use a crypto exchange. Is that correct? Today you can. When I first started trading, it was October 2011. So coming up on 10 years now, I actually think it's going to be in two days when I first bought. A little bit of a different scenario. It was just Bitcoin at that time. And there were no exchanges that, at least in the United States and Canada, that you could tie to any bank. So in order to buy Bitcoin, 
I had to go to a Western Union in a drugstore, wire money internationally to a name that that person behind the desk clearly knew. I had no idea who that person was. And then that organization then would put money into an account for me on this exchange called Mt. Gox. And that was the process of just buying it, selling it just as tedious. But since that time, you've seen the overall crypto market mature, mature from its original use cases and whether you agree or not with what that cryptocurrency was being used for, it did show as a baseline that it could be used as a medium of exchange. So it showed that there's a marketplace and this could be used as a currency. And it evolved into what it is today, where you have banks now filing for registration and approval to offer financial products featuring cryptocurrencies. So it's come out of the shadows, but it's also important to note that this is an asset class that's 12 years old. And like any 12-year-old, it's still not there where it's fully mature, where it's going to have, you know, the stability, the sort of the adoption, the buy-in as equities, as precious metals, etc. But there are, you know, very positive signs coming into the market. The institutional investors, the regulatory and compliance that are happening now around it, there's a lot of really positive momentum behind this asset in general. But for your listeners just to realize it's far from perfect. It's going to take years to even get to that point where it'll have a lot of the wrinkles ironed out. So have patience. It's still early, but uh, it's also really exciting because you're sort of getting a glimpse of really what the internet was like back in the late 90s. You knew it was going to be something special. Who knew where it was going to go? <laughs> yeah, you just had to wait a little bit. Yeah. Financially, it's also a product that is enabling trade in countries that don't have a stable fiat currency currently as well. So um, there's a lot of people in developing countries that are using this and able to transact business and um, build up their own capital markets with it, really, on the side. Yeah, and it's a phenomenon that I wish had a little bit more attention because you know, many people in developing countries, based on you know which country they're in, there is a lot of socioeconomic, political, natural challenges that they face based on the terrain and the environment that they're in. And in many cases, they all have a common denominator that they have a somewhat weak or struggling financial system. So you can't just put money into the chase on the corner. So what a lot of these people have to do is either hold money or hold value in something that's perishable, cattle, or a piece of land that if the harvest doesn't come in, they're screwed. And it's something that really is not scalable and it locks people into, you know, sort of this cycle of generational poverty. And it's something that's really somewhat fixable because if you look at these populations, while many of them don't have access to a bank account, a vast majority of them have cell phones. And this is the phenomenon that I was alluding to because the cell phone manufacturers, especially in you know Southeast Asia, were fantastic at getting affordable cell phones and flexible wireless connectivity to these individuals. So you saw this sort of black gray market happen where they were trading using cell phone minutes. So there's a this already built-in adoption. A nascent currency just developing of its own evolution. Agreed. And 
now all of a sudden you give them this opportunity to buy something that not only gives them that store value that you could trade much more freely in many more places, but also these are for the most part people who are not right now participating in the global economy in general. You might introduce several billion people now to e-commerce, to really everything that we take for granted many times online, this now gets opened up to them. Human rights opportunities for them from a financial standpoint as well. Yep. And the inequality, the um, the flattening out of inequality as well and bringing up people who um, really need it. Certainly, it's not going to be the silver bullet, but it certainly will help. That's going in the right direction. So I was really interested in the data point that I read in one of your blog posts about the um, every human is generating, what is it, uh, 1.7 megabytes of data every second. <laughs> it's, uh, it's scary. <clears throat> and this is part of looking at current model right now. Yeah, where did you find this, um, this uh, data? Well, I think it's actually old at this point. You know, I wrote that a few months ago, and I think it's even more with 5G rolling out at a much more you know, widespread pace than when I was writing that. I think I would even go as far to say that it's well north of that. But think about it. every day you have, for most people, several connected devices within arm's reach. Not just your cell phone or your computer, but we're talking about a nest in your home, your refrigerator, your car. There are many, many devices now, and it's only going to grow as 5G comes online and it's distributed more widely around the world. There are going to be many, many more devices. And ultimately, I read a stat that the average person will own within the next 10 years upwards of 40 connected devices for every one person. Now, that is a little scary because to produce all of that is also, you have to think there's only so much minerals and metals in, in the ground. How are we going to do that? But from a data standpoint, a lot of it has to do with how much privacy do you have? Is privacy even important? Now, I say that from a somewhat privileged position right now. You know, I live in a country right now where it's not being used, where I walk down the street and I might not be able to shop in a certain store. I might not be able to get access to a certain type of loan because I tweeted something online because my social score wasn't high enough. And without saying what country is doing that, that is a real thing. That is something that is being done at wide and grand scale at the moment. And these are things that can become scary. We've seen just in the last hundred years how many leaders have come up and ultimately devastated countries, devastated populations around the world. Now, if you give them something as really as powerful as data on their people and arm them with how do you now manipulate this, things can get really dangerous. And you don't have to look much further than what's happening with hackers, where a hacker will take down an energy grid. And while your lights might go out, so does that hospital down the street. Or when you shut down the energy grid, there's no more oil to pump gas out of the ground. So now that's going to shut down transportation. Then all of a sudden things get you know, real for people. Pretty messy. Yeah. And how do you avoid that? Well, you avoid that because right now all that data, all that access sits on a server. Your medical records, one of the easiest and most vulnerable places for hackers to attack are these local health clinics who don't have money to boost up their security. 
And what they do is, unfortunately, they steal the records and they hold it as ransom. And with blockchain, what this does is it says, look, take this data, take it off these central servers, put it on blockchain where it's encrypted. Encrypted and distributed across a whole range of services. Exactly. And that's important because if someone comes out, and I'm really happy you said that because being distributed means that someone just can't come forward with a counterfeit and say, this is the legitimate copy of it. It's a legitimate version because all you need to do is then go back to the blockchain and say, actually, that's not. And you know, I have an analogy that a lot of people done well with them where you know, if you're playing soccer as a kid and you played soccer on the street or football or rugby, whatever, and you had a dispute over the score, you couldn't just convince one of the kids on the street that the score was two to one. You had to convince everybody. And that's sort of a juvenile sort of basis of what's called consensus. And that's really what blockchain is built around. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but really it's centered around you need everyone who's going to verify, confirm, and ultimately provide that authenticity of the accuracy of that information. Yeah. So business and enterprise going forward, there's more use cases that this is going to be enabling and allowing. Tell us about some of those. So from a business standpoint, it becomes interesting because as an investor, and I'm thinking about publicly traded companies, one of the biggest challenges is how do I know that the information that I'm looking at when a quarterly earnings report comes out is an accurate reflection of the financial health of that company? Now, for most of these publicly traded companies, they put out four reports a year and they provide as little information as they have to to appease analysts. And it's not that hard to really hide numbers. You put it into certain buckets, you hide it in certain line items and you hope that it doesn't gain sort of the light of day. With blockchain though, what if those figures are available 24/7 and it's a living breathing record that you can then see is this company being properly managed? Are there warning signs should I be aware of growing debt? So it becomes from an investor standpoint very valuable in terms of understanding whatever company that you are investing in, not just blockchain based any company on any you know, public secondary market, once those records eventually move on to blockchain. But it also provides an opportunity for new businesses to come in and really be a disruptor. I heard a, this old analogy where, as a kid, you're told to not get into a stranger's car. Well, skip ahead 25 years, you not only pay to get into a stranger's car, you stay at their home, you have them deliver food to you, and at the same time, you're also going to let them come into your home and walk your dog when you're at work. These are things that as technology changes, as we go from this model of trust us to we're going to allow the objectivity of blockchain to provide that trust and provide that service is going to be delivered as expected. That uh, verification. Exactly. And we move from this area where anytime you buy something, there's always a seed of doubt in people's minds. What if, though, you had the opportunity to make a purchase where if certain things were not checked off, if the home didn't pass these inspections over the years, 
it wouldn't allow that transaction to go through. So I don't have to trust you as the owner anymore. I trust the records that are keeping track of that real estate that you own. These are things that ultimately we're moving towards. The internet helped us connect to anyone in any corner of the world. Blockchain is going to help us address the trust issue. I don't need to trust the other person on the other side because we're now going to allow the figures, the facts, the records dictate this transaction. Can you talk to us a, a little bit about Ethereum? Because Ethereum, apart from being a cryptocurrency, is apparently, from what I, I believe, is a technology that allows a lot more of this um, business case usage and enterprise case usage. Yeah, and I think it would be good also just to define cryptocurrency and token, because I think a lot of people confuse those two. While they seem interchangeable, there are slight differences. Cryptocurrency is a virtual digital cash that is native to a blockchain. Generally, there's only one cryptocurrency for every blockchain. So Ethereum, which is ETH, is a native currency for Ethereum, Bitcoin for Bitcoin, Solana for Solana. Now, a token is issued by these companies or projects or developers who are building on an existing blockchain. So think of Ethereum as the app store that Apple built, except this app store doesn't require a big organization to sit over top and manage overhead. It's self-sustaining. And on the app store, that being Ethereum, you have any developer or company who could come in and build an app, whether it's a fitness app, a music app, what have you. And this is really where Ethereum has tried to carve its niche. While Bitcoin could be a store of value and could be comparable to you know, many precious metals, Ethereum wants to be the backbone for really where blockchain technology will go and ultimately all the new projects that are built around blockchain technology. So it's more on the utility side and really providing that basis for the framework of Web 3.0, while other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are focusing more on the monetary store value side. So presumably these blockchains and these distributed ledgers exist on servers which run on electricity. What happens in a zombie apocalypse? What if this, the whole system falls down? Is it all going to disappear? Well, I think we'll have a lot of questions to ask about everything. <laughs> Nothing will work. <laughs> yeah. Where are we going to get our food? But it does require electricity, but there are you know, many blockchains that are, well, quote unquote, environmentally friendly. So they're not heavy consumers of electricity. In fact, there's more blockchains than not. Really, at this point, there's one being Bitcoin that's really just sort of an uh, electricity hog. The rest of them operate with pretty low amounts of energy required based on the models that they all run on. But effectively, it's you know a system where what happens if that server and really the internet that we use today is basically just a, a network of connected servers, mostly in concentrated parts of the world, which is a little scary because if that part of the world goes down, there's going to be some big problems in terms of the global internet. But without going too deep into that, this is where you're not dependent on the infrastructure of one part of the world. You don't have to worry about you know these broadband lines running below the ocean surface. And ultimately, this is something that as you start to look at renewable energy, this is an internet model that can operate very well 
on renewable energy versus if you've ever seen what some of these server farms look like for Google or Apple or Facebook, they buy entire cities basically in the middle of nowhere and it's just solar farms just to try and become a little bit more carbon neutral. And part of that is because they have to feed these gigantic servers. With this, because everyone can play a part in adding either cryptocurrency to operate and run these backend servers, they're called nodes, to add transactions to the blockchain. So you could do it with a cell phone. Or if you're using this as a commercial opportunity, you could run it on your desktop. You don't need to have a thousand computers all in a warehouse anymore to run it out in Iceland or in central China. This is something that's becoming a lot more scalable. And it's very similar to when the PC, which used to be the size of a, an entire room, shrunk down in something you can now put on your desk in your home in the 90s. We're getting to that point now where we'll start to see this become more distributed and a bigger part of sort of our everyday, mostly not even realizing that it's becoming a part of our everyday. So Edmund, tell us a bit more about Dechained and um, what uh, listeners can find on the Dechained website. Yeah, so Dechained was sort of my revolt a little bit against my background in tech, partly because having been in crypto for a while, I could see very clearly this is something that is going to have a pretty dramatic impact on business, on government, everyday lives. But in saying that, while everything was sort of looking really positive, what we saw was that a couple of years ago, we saw Bitcoin have a good run. Its price went up, and a lot of people that I knew got involved in Bitcoin and got involved in Ethereum without really much knowledge of what it was. And up to that point, the crypto space was really reserved for people either in finance or were into tech. And it wasn't anymore. And this is where I sort of had a bit of a moral dilemma because when it was great, it was great for everybody. But when it turned, ultimately those people who didn't really know what was going on or didn't understand the fundamentals, they were the ones who were left on an island where their portfolio lost 80% of its value. And there were warning signs all along the way. And what I wanted to do was create a platform that not only provided all of the information in a very easy to understand way, but also provide it in a way that is sequential so that people understand this is tied to this. This is why this behaves in that way. Because in many cases, people just don't know what they don't know. So to present it in a way that is logical, that is explaining it, but not condescending, which I also see in other platforms, and also fun. Community is a big part of any educational experience, and, and we certainly invest a lot in it. We have not only a community of other investors, but we also put together you know, virtual workshops and live Q&As. And really, we try to participate with people who sign up and are interested in this space because for us, D-Chain is something that's important. It's not our primary business, but it's one that we are keeping sort of intact because we think that it's incredibly important, especially over the next five to 10 years, where having people become more educated, understand what this is and what this is not. And what I mean by that is in the stock world, you'll go and you'll do your homework. You'll talk to an advisor. In crypto, you'll go listen to someone on Twitter with a chicken egg avatar, and you'll take <laughs> that as financial advice. It's this lotto ticket 
slot machine mentality. I don't invest in anything without a rocket emoji, Edmund. <laughs> uh, or laser beams out of the eyes. <laughs> so we wanted to help provide that one place where people could differentiate. Is this information or is this really entertainment? And in many cases, especially as you go on, on YouTube, a lot of times it's entertainment. A lot of times those individuals creating it are getting paid behind the scenes. Someone's paying for those fancy cameras that they're using. And we want to be very transparent and honest with people and, and help people understand, here's information that we're providing. It's objective. We don't make any money on whether you buy or sell more or less, or if you buy a certain coin. And at the end of the day, we want to build you know a stronger community. I think one of the key words that I noticed in, um, I can't remember where I saw it on your site, was that the information is not intimidating. I think a lot of people find this whole world intimidating. That's actually where the name D-Chain came from. So if you think about crypto, it's been this sort of this market, this asset class that has been unapproachable. It's been sort of locked away, guarded. And we wanted to unlock it. We wanted to remove the chains, open it up to people, bridge that gap between people sitting on the sidelines and people who are in it. And ultimately, D-Chained came about with that name of play on words. But it doesn't have to be. And in many cases, people try to make it more complicated than it really needs to be for their own benefit. And we think that that's just doing a disservice for people. And we have an opportunity right now because of how decentralized it is, where you could see a pretty dramatic shift in wealth being transferred across different groups of people who historically have not had that access. And for me, I think that that's incredibly important. This is once in a generation type of sort of opportunity right now that we're in. And I think that it's something that more people need to be aware of. And uh, it's D-Chained without an E, isn't it? That's correct. D-C-H-A-I-N-E-D.com. Come check us out. We have a number of URLs that we bought because a lot of people come to us and say, you misspelled your name. So you could check us out at maximizeyourportfolio.com is another one. If it's easier to remember. Edmund, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today... We're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.